Good morning, Tapestry. I am so glad that you are here with us this week. Um, we are in week three of this series, The Way Forward. And if you were here last week and have chosen to tune in again today, um, good on you. That says a lot about you as a person. Um, when my wife and I were listening to um, the message and when it ended up last week, she uh, she was she thought I was a little hard on you guys. And I, and I was. Um, and that's normally okay uh, as long as I am showing my weaknesses as well. And uh, I didn't do that a whole lot last week. I got pretty hard um, with you guys. So if you were here last week and you came back, um, good for you. Good for you. And, and as promised today, you can breathe easy because we are going to now begin uh, to beat up on some other people. Um, and we've been doing this series, The Way Forward, and we've gotten a little political, which we don't normally do. Um, but our nation right now is going through so many things um, and is focused on so many different things uh, during this election cycle. And um, the scriptures have something to say about all of it. But the big takeaway that we've established over the last couple of weeks as we've gotten rolling in this series is this, is that we as Christians, we need to begin to view our politics through the lens of our faith. And for a whole lot of Christians, sometimes myself included, um, we view our faith through the lens of our politics. And, and I'm convinced that that in finding the way forward in so many of the issues that we're facing, um, I can, I'm convinced that, that it's not a left or right thing. Um, there's, there's, there's another way. In fact, every time people tried to get Jesus to commit to one of two ways, are you with the religious leaders? Are you against? Are you with this? Are you against this? Um, Jesus had this knack of always kind of um, coming up with something that neither side had thought of, um, to presenting a third way, a new way of looking at things and going, um, and going about things. <clears throat> and I believe that the way forward for us as a nation um, isn't just left or right. I, I, I think that there is, I think that there is um, a third way. And if we can change the filter that we view our politics and everything that's going on, if we can change the filter that we view all of it through, um, we can not only find a way forward in all of our issues, but I think that there may be an opportunity for God to do some really amazing things in our nation. Um, <clears throat> so today we're going to look at one of the most remarkable forward moving stories in the Bible. And maybe not just in the Bible, maybe one of the most remarkable forward moving stories ever in history. Um, and the interesting thing about this story, um, which, which I'm always kind of drawn to stories like this, is that there, there, are, there are no miracles. This, this isn't one of those stories that, that you hear and you're like, oh, well, of course they could do that because look, the miracle, I don't get the miracle. And so I like these types of stories. There, there's no miracle or anything else supernatural in this story. God isn't speaking audibly to somebody. Angels don't appear. Lightning doesn't flash. This is all about leadership. Um, this story is about the providence of God. 
um, and a whole lot of prayer, a whole lot of prayer. And that makes this a great story um, because in it, there is a principle that if we embrace nationally could make all the difference in what we're going through as a nation. So, so let me set up where we're going to pick up this story. And some of you have are familiar with this story. Some of you may not be, but around um, 586, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar uh, came into Israel, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls around the temple and around the city, um, around Jerusalem and put an end to Israel as a superpower, kind of ended the golden age of the nation of Israel. And if you were here last week, we, we talked about what happened with a few of the different guys um, that Nebuchadnezzar had left in charge of Israel um, and, and the frustrations that what those guys did when they were in charge of Israel, um, the frustrations that the prophet Jeremiah had with those people. So 50 years later, 50 years later, things changed and, and the Babylonians were no longer the superpower. The Babylonians had been defeated by the Persians. And under King Cyrus, um, who was the king of Persia, um, something interesting happened. Once he had invaded and taken over Babylon and established it as the Persian Empire, um, he looked around and he saw, that, he saw that there were a bunch of foreigners, that there were a bunch of people who weren't from the land that he had just conquered. And it, the reason that was because anytime Babylon conquered another nation, they would take some of the best people out of that nation and bring them back to Babylon. Um, and so Cyrus decided, you know, he looked around and saw all these foreigners. Cyrus decides, hey, let's send these people home. They don't need to be here. We, we don't have any need for them here. Let's send them back to where they came from. So when that first wave of people were sent back, about 50,000 people left Babylon uh, the new Persian empire and went back to Israel. And when they went back, their goal was to try to rejuvenate a nation. Their goal was to try and take a nation that had been destroyed by invasion and occupation and find a way forward for that nation. So they went back and they went back and things went okay for a while. If you read the book of Ezra, the book of Ezra is about that first group of Israelites that go back to Jerusalem. They, they did things like they, they rebuilt the temple. Um, even though the temple that they rebuilt had, was nowhere near, didn't have near the glory that Solomon's temple um, had. That The economy got a little better. Um, but faltered due to the lack of the wall around the city because the city was open to um, invasion and people coming in and just taking things. Um, the nation was in an in, in incredible debt to all of the other nations that were surrounding it. And things generally in Israel were bad, getting worse. They were bad and they were headed in the wrong direction. And time goes by and um, after Cyrus is gone, there's a guy that takes over uh, as king in, in for over the Persian empire. And, and his name is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, aren't you glad you don't have that name, Artaxerxes? Um, but he's sitting on the throne of the Persian empire and he continues this habit, uh, this kind of tradition that Cyrus has started of sending people back to their homelands, back to where they came from. And, and, and it just so happened that Artaxerxes, his cupbearer, 
was a Jewish man. Uh, he had been born in captivity in Babylon, so he had never actually been to Israel, um, but he was Jewish. And because he was very smart, he had gotten, to the, gotten close to the, to the king, and this guy's name was Nehemiah. And at one point in the story, um, Nehemiah is with the king and Nehemiah's brother who had been um, in Jerusalem visited him. And Nehemiah asked him, how are things in Israel? How are things in Jerusalem? And now we don't think that Nehemiah to this point had ever even actually been, but his brother tells him, he's like, Nehemiah, things are worse than ever. Right, the, the, the gates are burnt. The walls are gone. The, the economy is terrible. Things are disorganized. Most of the citizens are in debt to foreigners. They, they've leveraged their land. They've leveraged uh, their, their businesses, their crops. So some people had even leveraged their wives and their children for the loans that they had taken out. And when, when Nehemiah hears this, I mean, his heart is broken. Just thinking of the state that Israel is in. So he begins to pray, God, I want to do something for my people. I want to do something. And, and so he prays, God, give me favor with the king. Give me favor with the king. And, and eventually, please allow Artaxerxes to release me as his cupbearer back to Jerusalem. So one day when the king was in a particularly good mood, um, he goes to him and he asks for a leave of absence. He says, King, can, can I return to Jerusalem so that I can try and find a way forward for my nation? So the king says, yes. And not only did he say yes, but he made Nehemiah the governor of the province. So he said, Nehemiah, not only can you go back, but when you go back, I'm putting you in charge. I'm putting you in charge. Plus he gave him letters to carry with him so that everywhere Nehemiah stopped between Babylon, now Persia and Jerusalem, he would be able to present the letter from the king of Persia and anyone would let him stay and would feed him and help him along to have a successful journey. So long as he promised that he would eventually return and continue serving the king. So Nehemiah spent some time putting together a, an entourage, a group of people to, to travel with him. And, and he heads back to Jerusalem. And eventually he arrives. And when he does, the people assume that he's just going to be um, another governor who's going to add more taxes, um, who's going to take more from them, just like every governor before him had. Because that was what the governors did. But Nehemiah didn't do that. He did something different. He settled in the city and every night he would go out and he would survey the broken walls around the city. And then in one of the most amazing leadership stories, Nehemiah gathers together all of the skeptical Jewish people and he casts a vision for their future. He says, listen, we are going to rebuild this wall around this city. We're going to reestablish our credibility with the surrounding nations. 
And the people listen to Nehemiah talk. They can feel his passion. They can feel um, that he means the things that he's saying, that he's not just going to come in and be like every other governor that just leveraged whatever was there for himself. And they bought into it and they began to organize and rebuild the walls around the city. Well, as they begin, Nehemiah begins to recognize that the biggest thing holding them back from the way forward uh, is this. The men of Israel were so indebted to the surrounding nations that they were afraid that if they missed a single payment, that they would lose everything that they would lose their, their, their farms, their land, their home, their wives, their sons, their daughters, that, that they would just lose it all. And Nehemiah realized if he wanted their undivided attention, their focus to be able to finish what Nehemiah has set out to do within this city, uh, he was going to have to do something about the economic state of Israel. And all of the trouble that they were facing. So here's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah dips into his own personal wealth. And his own resources. And he pays off the debts of all of the people of Jerusalem. Right? I mean, that's a big deal. And so this way he did it because in his mind and the way he was thinking, he thought, well, if they could have their homes and their property back and their families and they were never being threatened, they'd be able to really accomplish something. They wouldn't be always looking over their shoulder and have that anxiety sitting on top of them. And so he spent an enormous amount of his own personal wealth to buy the Jewish people out of slavery, all with the understanding that they would then commit to helping him move the city forward. So things begin to go better and there's a lift amongst the people. Imagine how good you would feel if somebody just showed up and paid off every debt that you had. I mean, you'd feel good, right? And the people did and things are starting to move forward. But, but then Nehemiah discovers something that makes him so angry that he can barely see straight. Just as everything is starting to get underway with the reconstruction, he discovers that the wealthy Jewish people saw all of this and all that was going on as a business opportunity. They're like, oh, Moneybag's new governor here, he's going around paying off everybody's debt, which means if we can figure out a way to get the people indebted to us, then we have a guarantee because of Nehemiah that our loans to them will be paid off. And so they began to work um, channeling through some of the Gentiles of the surrounding nations to move people or to trick people back into um, undebtedness, into debt where they were heavily, heavily leveraged. Now here's Nehemiah. Nehemiah's paid a high price to get people out of debt. And now his own Jewish brothers are undoing everything that he had done. And Nehemiah was furious. And here, here's where we pick up the story with an angry Nehemiah, chapter five. It says, when I heard their outcry, that is the Jewish people who were back into debt and these charges, I was very angry. That's how I knew he was angry. I told you that earlier. He was, because he said it. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles who were the people left over from uh, the noble families of generations back. 
He accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Which may be like, wait, wait, what? Well, that's how it works, right? Alone, interest. But when God had set up the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, he said, you are to be a nation that loans, not a nation that borrows. And you are not to charge your own people interest. So this just wasn't... Um, against civil, this wasn't against civil law, what they were doing, but it was against Jewish custom and it was against their tradition. So Nehemiah does what every leader's got to do at some juncture and he calls a meeting. He says, so I called together a large meeting. That's how I knew to deal with them. And he said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. In other words, I spent my own money to solve this issue and free the Jewish people. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. See, they had figured out a way to scam Nehemiah and take advantage of his generosity and his patriotism. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were in Nehemiah's shoes that you had spent out of your own money to free the people and then your fellow countrymen were going behind you and putting them right back in debt? My goodness. Listen to their response. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I know I said there were no miracles in the story, but this might be a minor miracle, right? Here are all the rich, established nobles and leaders being stared down by the new guy in town and they are speechless. So Nehemiah continued, What you are doing is not right. It may not be illegal. There may not be a law on the books, but this may have been going on for generations. But you know in your heart that what you are doing is leveraging an unfair advantage you have over your fellow Jewish people. He says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And he's saying, look, what do you think the people outside of our nation are going to think about us and the way we're treating our own people? What is wrong with you guys? He keeps going. He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. In other words, we know there's a need. We know there's an opportunity, but when someone needs something, give it to them or loan it to them to be paid back. But don't enrich yourselves on the back of your fellow Jewish people. He said to them, give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. They were charging them 12% annual interest. And we're planning on collecting it from Nehemiah. And here, here's how they responded. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Nehemiah, he hears this and he kind of looks at them. And I don't know if it was one of those moments where they kind of just stare each other down and Nehemiah's like looking deep into their eyes, trying to, trying to see if they were trying, telling the truth, but... Nehemiah, I think, eventually came to the conclusion that he didn't buy it because look at what he did next. 
Nehemiah says, then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. He didn't trust them at all. So he made them take an oath. Look at what else he does. I also shook out the folds of my robe, which was sort of an ancient curse. I shook out the folds of my robes and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their houses and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Basically told them that if they thought they could get away with it, God would get them. There was no way out. At this, the whole assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Tragedy averted, right? Now you hear a story like that. And if you start to think about our current situation in the nation and how we're set up with our rulers and leaders, and I guess technically we don't have rulers, but those in charge, you hear a story and you think about maybe, maybe you think about the president, maybe you think about Congress, um, maybe bankers, maybe the Wall Street, the money guys. Um, anyone in a position of power who are leveraging the issues we are facing for their own gain. It's hard for any of those people. It's hard to imagine them sitting around in their expensive suits, listening to somebody talk, telling them how wrong they're being and how they should you know, be doing what's best for the nation, not enriching themselves. It's hard to imagine them listening to that And when it's all done, looking at the person and saying, yeah, you're right. You're right. We shouldn't be taking advantage of the opportunity to be leveraging leveraging it for our own personal gain. And so we're going to give back everything we've taken, everything we've gained. We're going to, including the power that we've taken, including the, you know, the interest, the wealth that we've made off the backs of the people. It's kind of hard to imagine anyone in a position of power doing that, isn't it? But there's a part of the story that you don't know yet if you haven't read the book of Nehemiah. There was another advantage that he had that caused the people he was speaking to to respond the way that they did. He had something beyond the authority of just the title of governor. He had something beyond the authority of just having the backing of the king of Persia behind him. He had something that took him about 12 years to fully earn with the people that gave him the credibility and influence that he exercised in that part of the story that we just read. And because of this, the people that he addressed were ashamed of themselves and they were shamed into doing what was right. Here's what we find out Nehemiah had been doing all along. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, Until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Now, what that means is this, is that as the governor, he was uh, entitled 
to a certain percentage of all the grain, all the crops, all the land, all the wealth. But when he showed up in Jerusalem, he decided not to take those things that he was entitled to. Nehemiah keeps talking. He says, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. And their assistants also lorded it over the people. So the previous governors, they took everything they were entitled to and then some, right? And they were surrounded by people by their cronies that, that took advantage of the people of Israel for their own personal gain. But Nehemiah says this, but out of reverence for God. Now, don't you love that as a motivating factor? Out of not because I was forced to, not because some law said that I had to, or because somebody was making me, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to work on this wall. And this is huge. This is huge. He said, I came here to get this wall built. And so that's what I focused on. I had a job to do. That is what, when I looked at the city and what it needed, that is the way forward for the city. So that's where my attention was. He says, all of my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. And that's huge as well, because the way you enriched yourself in that culture was much like you enrich yourself today. Whoever owned the land owned the resources. And there were plenty of good land deals for wealthy people coming into a depressed, struggling, leveraged economy. And Nehemiah told his men, we're not going to acquire land. That's not why we're here. We will not leverage our wealth against these people so that we become wealthier. And goes on. He says, furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. And then he closes with this. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. So when Nehemiah had gathered the wealthy and the powerful, they were eyeball to eyeball with a guy who not only followed the law, but went above and beyond the law. Uh, a guy who was entitled as the governor, but never took what he was entitled to. They were face to face with a guy who said, I have come to build this wall and to move this city forward. And I will not allow myself or my people to be distracted by wealth or power or entitlement or opportunity. We are going to get this done. We're going to move the nation forward. And when he demanded, when he demanded that the rich and the powerful step up and do what was in the entrance of the nation, they were shamed into doing it because, because the reason they were shamed into doing it is because the guy they were looking at, every single one of his actions matched his words to the deepest level. 
to a point where it cost him personally. See, Nehemiah had more than authority of a position. He had moral authority. Moral authority. Moral authority um, is the credibility that you earn by walking the talk. It's when people look at you and they say, I may not believe what he believes, but I believe that he believes it. I may not agree with the way that she sees the world, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that there is consistency in the way that she acts with the way that she views the world. You know, we, we may have differences, but they are sincere and, and speak the truth and are committed to what it is that they say. There is no hidden agenda or duplicity within them. That is moral authority. And when you find yourself face to face with someone who has earned moral authority, it is a powerful thing. The words they say carry more weight because their moral authority is more convincing than any title that you could hold. Because listen, titles give you a measure of authority, but moral authority gives you influence. Now, the phrase moral authority, it's not in the Bible. You're not not gonna find it, but there is a biblical phrase that implies the same thing. And that's a phrase that many of you, if you've grown up in church, have heard. Um, It's the phrase being beyond reproach. Being beyond reproach. That is somebody who, as we look into their lives, there is a consistency between what they say they are about and how they behave, that those two things line up. Now, when you you hear that story of Nehemiah, most of us think that's the type of person or leader that I wanna be, right? Don't you wanna be a person of moral authority that, that people believe the things that you say because your life and your actions live up to and match your words? right? That people would know that there's no duplicity within you, that there's no ulterior motives, that you're not trying to leverage something against them, right? And if you have worked under a person or been around a person like this, you know how much weight that carries, right? That there were times that you might not have understood or even agreed with what the person was doing or asking you to do, but you did what they asked you to do because of their moral authority, Now, here's the thing that's interesting and tragic about our country. About 22 years ago, we began a national debate over this question. Is there any relationship between a person's personal life and their ability to serve in government? Right, And this question arose to the very front of the national conscience because we were dealing with a president who had been caught abusing his authority by having an affair with a young intern. And the question was, and the television coverage at the time, all of the news, everything, the question was this, is there any relationship? Like, does it really matter how a person handles their personal finances and morals 
and ethics. That is, is there a dividing line um, between that and what they do for the public in a public office, right? Does it matter if those two things do not line up? Well, just as it so happens, the American people voted on that. And the American people concluded that yes, it matters. And no, it doesn't matter. That's it. Yes, it matters when the person is in the political party opposite of me. Then you better believe that their personal life and their morals and their integrity and what they do in private, you better believe that it matters. But no, it doesn't matter when it's someone in the same political party as me. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't affect his ability to do his job. And those, those calling um, for morality in a president's personal life, uh, when, it's, when it's not their party in the Oval Office, they're the same ones who are excusing a lack of morality in a president's life when it's their guy in the office. So today, since we're all now going to begin to view our politics through our faith and not our faith through our politics, we're going to have to agree with God when it comes to this. The scriptures and common sense tells us, yes, absolutely, it matters. Absolutely. It, it, it matters. It matters if there's alignment between what a person says publicly and what a person does privately. Right? It, it, yes, it matters if there's duplicity in what they represent publicly and how they live their life privately. Of course it matters. Of course it matters. It, it, it matters. If we want our national leaders to have credibility, this matters. If we want our national leaders to have influence beyond just the title of their position, then yes, this absolutely matters. If we want to get rid of the cynicism that is so prevalent in our current political culture, then yes, moral authority absolutely matters. If we want the next generation of Americans to grow up respecting the president, to respect Congress, to respect our entire political process, then yes, of course, this matters. It, it, it is okay. It is okay to ask those who represent us to be beyond reproach in their personal finances and their personal morality and their personal ethics. And I don't think that's a lot to ask. And I can hear some of your objections, your objections now. Oh, but Andy, you know, we're all just human. Nobody's perfect. To which I would reply, we're not talking about just being the leader of the homeowners association or the moose lodge. That's not what we're talking about. This is the United States of America. And it's okay to expect our leaders to live their life in such a way that they have influence beyond their titles. And we want people with moral authority to be representing us in our country. And we all know people who have moral authority and are not involved with things of such importance, don't we? Right? 
It is not unreasonable to ask our leaders to be Nehemiahs. It's not. And I don't care if they're Democrat Nehemiahs or Republican Nehemiahs. It's not too much to ask that they do the job they are there for and to make it a priority. And yes, we will hold them accountable to how they live their personal lives. The way forward for our nation will begin when moral authority supersedes re-election as the value of choice amongst our national leaders. Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, doesn't matter. The walk needs to match the talk. And if I could somehow magically get the ear of our politicians, I would say this. I would say, listen, if you're having an affair, if you're taking money on the side, um, if you're a functioning alcoholic or have a drug issue, if you're leveraging your position for your own gain, not for the benefit of the people who you represent, please, please step down and do not run for re-election. Because even though, even though those things are personal, they will affect your job. And I would add, if you give away less than 3% of your income, please resign now. Because if you can't be generous with your personal money, and listen, 3% isn't even really very generous. If you can't be generous with your personal income, I don't want you making decisions on how to be generous with mine. That only seems to make sense to me. Now, I don't think a single one of them would listen to me. <laughs> I don't have that leverage over them, but here's what I know. If you get a Republican Nehemiah in the room with a Democrat Nehemiah and fill the room around them with other Nehemiahs, they will figure out the way forward for our nation. And here's why. It's because when people can trust the word of the other person and the character of the other person, even if they don't agree, they can work together to get things done. Solomon said it like this. He said, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the naive are destroyed by their duplicity. And we have all seen duplicity work its way into leadership. And if you would lie to your wife and if you would lie about your money, why would we trust you? Why, why would we trust you? And my point is this, is that we don't have time for any more of this nonsense, regardless of what side of the aisle you happen to sit on. And if we can fill the ranks of our leadership with people of personal and professional integrity, people with moral authority, not only will we find the way forward as a nation financially with the race issues that we're dealing with, with so many other things that are going on, but perhaps, perhaps we may even grow deeper and stronger as a nation. So here's my challenge to you in this election season and year. My challenge to you as a Christian who is now going to view their politics through their faith, would you be willing to pray 
beyond your party lines and be very willing to view your politics through the lens of your faith and pray that God gives us Nehemiahs as national leaders, because here's what all of our elected officials have in common. They were elected. So in the end, it's once again about we, not they. Because the great thing about our system is that they are all there. All of the leaders are there because we put them there. And we have the power to put men and women of integrity into those positions. And when we do, we will find the way forward from the chaos that is currently engulfing our nation. But you have got to be willing to stop looking at the D and the R and look for people with moral integrity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as I have read through the story of Nehemiah, what a different nation we would be in if we placed leaders in office who had this type of moral authority. no matter which party those leaders were representing, if they had that type of integrity, God, this nation would look different and we would be able to pull ourselves out of the issues that are currently destroying us from the inside. So Lord, I pray that as we're in this contentious election season, that God, you don't allow us to view our faith through our politics. But you make faith the thing that we see everything else through. And let us, let our eyes be opened to who is in it for themselves and leveraging the situation for their own power, for their own gain, for their own glory. And who would be people who would go and put the work of moving the nation forward as their priority, even though it would cost them personally. Lord, let us fill the offices of this nation with those types of people. So that through the wisdom that they would gain from you, we can move forward. Lord, I thank you for stories such as this that we have preserved in these texts that show us what's possible. And Lord, us putting people of integrity into office is possible. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We look forward to next week as we continue on in the series, The Way Forward.